All right, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be here. <clears throat> when they asked me to come, my initial reaction was, well, you can't say no to that. <laughs> when I was 23, I got together with some friends and started my second church plant. The first one's another story, never mind. <laughs> and the truth of it is, I really just started that church for me. I just wanted to have a church I could stand going to. And for, for me, that meant some really basic things. I wanted to have my kind of music. That was number one. Number two, I wanted to dress the way I wanted to dress. That meant no more suits and ties. And that has remained true. The only way you'll get me in a suit and tie is either to get married or to die. <laughs> That's it. Nothing, nothing else. Um, and we had this idea that if we did church like that, our kind of music, our kind of dress, a lot of people would come and they would come to Jesus. And we would get them into small groups and try to build a relational community, and that was our dream. And it worked for a little bit. And our little church grew to about 100, 120. And then my wife and I felt led to go start essentially like a second service or a, a new site. We didn't have that language then, but in an inner city in Chicago, a, a, a rougher neighborhood, what you guys would call like an estate, I forget the language, but you know, where the people who like aren't as privileged are at, you know. We're, we're... And uh, I thought that if we just came down there with our small groups and our new music and whatnot, that they would come to Jesus and everything would go, but it didn't work. It turned out they already had small groups. They were called gangs. <laughs> and they already had their kind of music and their kind of clothes. And they didn't need any of that. And basically, nothing worked. For the first time in my life, nothing worked. I thought that God had called us there to start this church Nobody came to faith. Nobody joined the church. Uh, nothing was working. And I'd never experienced failure before, and now I was experiencing failure every day. And I fell into what I now understand to be pretty serious depression. I was really seriously depressed. Uh, it was the 80s, so... We didn't know what that was. Um, and uh, it was hard to get out of bed. It was hard to pray. Basically, I was reduced to where I could do nothing. If my team prayed for me, I could do, do a few things, manage to kind of go through the motions of church for a half a week. And then I'd be back where I started really couldn't do anything. This continued for three and a half years. I tried giving up and closing the church after a couple of years. I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to close. We're just going to give this up. We're going to go back. 
But a guy named George Claudio gave his life to Jesus the day before I was going to have the meeting to close the church. And I was so angry at him. <laughs> because I thought, now I can't close the church. I got to like stay and take care of this baby Christian. How could, he, how could he dare get saved the day before? I'm finally going to get out of this thing. And it's sort of like, I can't make this church go. I can't even close this church. A long story short, after about three and a half years, I heard about this group called Vineyard and this guy named John Wimber who was teaching a class called Signs and Wonders of Church Growth at Fuller Seminary. And what I heard sounded like something I'd been looking for my whole life. So in January 1985, two friends and I got on a plane and went out to California to check this church out to see if it was the real deal. We'd read things, we'd heard tapes, we'd kind of had the Christian publicity, but we're from Chicago and Chicagoans are learned quickly to be skeptical. And so we weren't, we weren't really sure we could trust Christians to tell us the whole truth. And so we went out there to check, check it out. On the very first day, we ended up in a meeting with John Wimber and he gave a, a lovely little talk on how pastors need to be servants, which I'm thinking, wow, that, a lot more people needed to hear that than did. And then he says at the end, you know, like the Holy Spirit wants to do something here, so everybody just stand, just relax. And long story short, First, he's like talking about see the Holy Spirit on people. And I was like, what in the world is he talking about? And I remember there's this one lady. She starts shaking her hands really. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, that's weird. That's weird. She's weird. She's got problems. Where are the ushers? I knew it. California, land of weirdos. I was bringing out every judgment I had. And I'm in right in the middle of judging this lady. And I, I never did meet her. You'll see why in a minute. Never did meet her. You know, I, so I ever after she's lady shaky hands, you know. But I'm judging her and all of a sudden John Wimber says, now receive the spirit. This time a little more forcefully. And it was like a fist hit me in the chest. And about knocks me over my chair. Now at that point, my first and very rapid immediate concern went like this. I must regain control of my body as quickly as possible so that I don't end up looking like her. <laughs> that was for concern number one. Because I am not one of those people who likes getting attention. My second question was, since when does God hit people? That person who said God is a gentleman lied. And then I thought, hold on, that was real. That was really real. That was physical here and now real. That was not some emotion. 
That was not some spiritual reality out there in the ether somewhere. That was physical power hitting me, knocking me over my chair in the here and now. And I realized that somewhere inside, even though I grew up in a Pentecostal church and I've been speaking in tongues since I was 11, which is a little bit late for the Pentecostal church, but <laughs> in spite of all of that, there was this place in me that didn't believe the Holy Spirit was real. But then I knew and I repented of my unbelief. Instantly, my whole body went pens and needles. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. And this continued for an hour, which is why I never met Lady Shaky Hands, because I couldn't move and couldn't speak. And by the time I came out of it, there was nobody left in the room except me and my friends. At the very end of that time, it was very peaceful. It was like very peaceful. I just couldn't move and couldn't speak. No words except at the very end, one sentence from God. I'm not finished with you yet. <laughs> Hold on to your seats. Five days later, we were supposed to meet with a youth pastor and he had gotten his schedule turned around and he had gone off for two hours to have a slow California lunch and we had to wait for him. And they had this big warehouse they met in in those days across the street from Disneyland. And there were about 3,000 chairs in there. So my buddy said, let's, let's, let's go in there and worship while we're waiting. And I felt really grumpy. And my immediate reaction was, I don't want to worship. I want to sit here and complain about that youth pastor who's messed up his schedule. But when you're the pastor, you can't say, I don't want to worship. So I tried pretending to worship. I don't know if you've ever done that. You go through the motions, but inside, you're not worshiping. So I thought, I'll worship on the outside, but I'm not worshiping on the inside. I'm going to be complaining. And while that's going on, all of a sudden, a wind comes on me. I feel a wind. And I'm, as I'm thinking, is that the Holy Spirit? Is that what it's like? One of my friends gets up, comes over, and puts his hand right there. I don't know what he saw. I don't know why he did it. But he put his hand on the exact place where I felt the wind. And my body turned to jello, and I slid, slithered, really, out of my chair onto the floor. And then began a process that felt like a rod of fire or electricity ran up and down my body from head to toe, rod of fire. And as it would move up and down, my muscles would quiver in place violently. And it would go up and down and then it would kind of get quiet for a minute and then there'd be a new wave and it would get, and each wave was stronger than the one before. Pretty soon it was getting hard to breathe. At one point I heard somebody yelling and I'm thinking, who's yelling? And then I realized it's me. 
I'm yelling. My friends left and went to the meeting. They left me there with God all by myself. I thought, really, if it got any more powerful, I would die. It continued for three and a half hours. Something did die. What died was my fear of what people thought. It's pretty hard to be afraid of what people think when you feel that God can burn you up at any second. And what died was the idea that I could do anything myself. Well, what happened then became like a fairy tale almost. My life looking back to that moment is nothing like I thought my life would be. The church, well, you know, God made us give the church back to him and let him do what he wanted with it and he changed everything and it became something way beyond our wildest imaginations. Thousands of people got healed. I've seen the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk, and we even had one, what I call, near resurrection. The guy was brain dead, but they hadn't stopped the breathing tube yet. We've seen it all. We saw God take us to the corners of the world. I prayed for an exchange student that I didn't even know was an exchange student from Turkey for a cold. He got instantly healed, and that began a chain of events that resulted in planting churches in four Muslim countries, including hundreds of house churches in Iran. And it just goes on and on and on. I've seen thousands of people in an instant, their life ambushed by God and changed. When I went back home from that experience, from the fire experience, the power of the Lord fell on our little church. And all of a sudden, every time we met, God was there. Crazy things happening. People came to church early so they could get seats in the front so they could be as close as possible to the action. People started confessing their sins. And it was glorious. God started showing me my sins. There must have been at least three or four Sundays I'm in front of the church confessing my sins. And it was glorious. Never felt so close to God. We were, it was like we were floating in a sea of mercy. It was so sweet. He was so close. We felt so soft to God. You almost wanted to make up sins just so you could have a little more mercy. It was so wonderful. And 
What happened was the people in our little church started going to everything. We could not get enough. We could not get enough. If John Wimmer says, I'm going to be in, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, doing a seminar on healing, we all bought plane tickets and went. And we went, and we went, until nobody had any money left, and nobody had any vacation time left. We literally spent it all. And then the next year, he says, oh, I'm going to England. You can come along and be the ministry team. Oh, but you have to pay your own way. No problem. We'll just take out a mortgage. <laughs> We're like, we'll get the money. We'll have grandma over for dinner and work her hard. We'll do whatever it takes. We're going. Why was it like that? It's because we found the kingdom. The kingdom broke into our life. All of a sudden, our life wasn't ordinary anymore. All of a sudden, nothing was ordinary anymore. God was here. God was in our life. And it was so good. We couldn't get enough. I mean, the power and love of God, it's the most addictive thing in the universe. Everything else is a pale shadow. We could not get enough. We found the kingdom. Matthew 13 Verse 44. Let's see if they get it. I think it's coming. Well, there it is. Kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When you find the kingdom, when you really find the kingdom, you find joy. Joy. And you can't get enough. And you are willing to pay anything and everything to have it. And you know, I, it's very interesting. I, I suspect it doesn't really quite say this, but I suspect that the joy was greater after he sold everything. Because then he knew, I actually have it. I got it. What makes the finding of the kingdom the treasure? Well, the beginning is seeing lives restored and healed. You know, we had a guy named Matt who was a child in our church. His parents were attending our church. He had an older sister named Christine. One day when Matt was 11, his mom woke up in the morning. Everybody thought everything was fine. And she dropped down dead. Died instantly. There was something wrong with her, the electrical system in her heart. And it hadn't been diagnosed. 
Well, Matt, as you can imagine, an 11-year-old boy losing his mother unexpectedly didn't handle it super well. And he struggled. He spun out. Got in with the wrong crowd at school. Eventually his dad, to keep him from overdosing on something and ending up dead, sent him off to a rehab camp. And I think he prayed a lot. Matt eventually came back home and he was willing to meet with me. We, he, he couldn't come to any other meetings. He wouldn't, wouldn't go to church, wouldn't go to a small group, but he was willing to meet with me at the China Buffet, which is a real desperate situation. <laughs> because I don't know how it is here, but in Chicago, China Buffet is, you know, the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of restauranting. It's like if you're starving, you can find food here. But it's not great by any means. But he was willing to go and meet with me there. I don't know why it was there, but that was the case. And we would talk and pray. And slowly, God restored him and met with him. And he began to experience God's love. And eventually, he was able to come to church. And then eventually, he was able to get back in a small group. Fast forward a few years, he got married. And now he and his wife were leading a small group. And then there was a woman in our church, an African-American woman. Matt's family was white, middle class. This African-American woman came down with terminal cancer. She had three children. She was a single mother. And she had no place to live. So Matt and his wife said, come and live with us. So this woman and her three boys came and moved in with Matt and his wife. And for her, I forget how long it took, but eventually she died. But before she died, she made a will out that turned over guardianship of her sons to Matt and his wife. And they took them in as their own children. And the oldest one went to college. He's recently come back from school. He's got a job. He's doing well. The youngest one is doing well. Middle one, I think, is doing all right. Their mother would be proud of them. Matt was a part of that. One life was restored, which led to many other lives restored. He knew when those boys moved in with him, they were the same age as he was when he lost his mother. Is that not the goodness of God? So that's part of it. Part of the treasure is living in the dynamic of the future. Like our experiences was, as children of God, we were bringing God's power everywhere we went. Anything could happen at any moment. 
You know, a few years back, some guys said, you know, we want to know your secret because every time you go places, things happen. What, what is it? Do you have some sort of special fasting and prayer routine? And I thought, if I fasted for every miracle I saw, I would never eat. <laughs> I laughed. I said, it's not what I do. It's what was done to me. It was what was done to me back in an empty warehouse across from Disneyland in fire for three and a half hours. But now, I just expect things to happen. But most important of all, the treasure is living in the presence of the Lord. Like, not the theoretical presence. Not, not the, well, you know, we know that God is everywhere, and so he must be here. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about, like, no, the sense that he's here in every conversation, in every moment, that he's close, that he's directing every minute. He's working around me in every moment. Not just when I'm at church, but just any time. I mean, the weirdest things happen. A couple years ago, I get on an airplane. I'm on my way home after a long week. I think I'm going to rest. This young guy gets on, sits next to me, and turns to me and says, I'm on my way back home on the worst day of my life. And I think, okay. I see what we're doing here. <laughs> the Lord is working, and I'm working with him. And I thought I was done, but I'm not. Here we go. And so on. It goes like that. There's this sense of like, God's got me, and he's with me, and he's in me, and, and he's always got me. That's the treasure. But he had to sell everything to get it. We sold everything to get it. Uh, the beginning was, of course, spending everything we had just to go to the conferences and learn. That's not where it stopped. John and Eleanor, you'll hear from here later this weekend, they left a fairly cushy position in an expensive neighborhood of London in the Anglican Church and moved to California to be assistant interns or something with John Wember for a couple of years. John and Debbie Wright did the same thing. There was a young man in, in Dublin, Sean Byrne, he had his own fire experience, 1987 in Dublin, in the middle of worship. The Lord arrested him and called him to the kingdom. He ended up going to Fuller Seminary, then coming to Chicago, and doing an internship with us, and then going back to Dublin and starting the first Vineyard Church in Ireland. That turned out pretty well. 
welcome to all you Irish people. Then the people in Belfast heard that we had a vineyard down in Dublin and they thought, that's not fair. Like, where's our vineyard? So the next thing I know, I'm going up to Dublin, I'm going up to Belfast to meet with a bunch of them to see if they're the kind of people we could start a church with and to see if there's anybody there that God is calling. And there was a couple that came in late. As soon as they walked in, God said, that's the ones. I'm going to do it with them. Beware of coming late. And when the meeting was over, I took them into the kitchen and I said, uh, I'm actually, you know, I, I, I think I've been asking God who could possibly get this, plant this church in Belfast, but it would involve moving to Chicago for a year with their family and being trained in Chicago and then coming back. And as soon as I said it to them, the power of God came on them they started shaking violently, ended up on the floor of the kitchen screaming as they had their own fire experience and God called them and they came with their three teenage children and lived in Chicago for a year. And the other people who said, we want a vineyard, paid for it. So we moved across the world to be a part of this thing. We abandoned our former plans So many of us, like, we went to see signs and wonders and what we got was a call to go somewhere. We had to learn to take risks, crazy risks. Big risks, little risks. Leave your job for what you don't know is gonna happen. Trust God that he's gonna give you something to make a living and give you a place to live is what we did. We mostly went and then found out what the provision was after the fact. We had to take risks praying for people. One time I'm with John and, I, and we were at the conference center up in Harrogate. And John liked to like start these meetings off with getting some sick people on the stage and have vineyard pastors come up and demonstrate our naturally supernatural approach to praying for the sick. And so I was up there and he got some sick people and I got this guy from Germany who had been in an industrial accident where he burned his lungs and every breath he took hurt was painful. It was painful for him to breathe. And I thought, oh no, that sounds really hard. <laughs> and I prayed for him and nothing happened. But a picture popped into my head. And the picture was of me blowing in this guy's mouth. And I said to the Lord immediately, no way. <laughs> That's not naturally supernatural. That's weird. I am not doing that. Like everybody would see. So I tried praying again, the normal way. Nothing's happening. But the picture comes again. And I'm thinking, oh no, like he's like insisting. 
I'm going to like, I'm actually going to have to do this thing. So you have to understand that client that comes on, you have to like say to the guy, would you mind holding your mouth open? And wouldn't you know, the guy's six, three. So like, I got to jump to blow in his mouth. Like really everybody's going to see, they're going to know exactly what I'm doing. And it's weird. But there was nothing else to do. So I did it. And he got instantly healed. Thank God that's the only time it ever happened. I never had to <laughs> never had to blow again. You know, like don't go out and start blowing on people. It's, it's like a one-time only kind of a deal. <laughs> Unless God specifically tells you. We did all kinds of things. We endured criticism and misunderstanding. There are all kinds of articles written against the vineyard. In Australia, there was a, an, a whole delegation of church leaders met John Wimber at the airport when he got off the, air, the airplane and said, we would like you to get back on that plane and go back to America. Well, he didn't go back. There are all kinds of misunderstanding because the kingdom upsets the status quo. Always the kingdom upsets the status quo. In those times, we felt led to do all kinds of practical disciplines in order to sharpen our spiritual senses. I can't even tell you how many of us did 20, 30, 40 day fasts. We actually did fast a lot in those days. We studied the Bible over and over. We spent hours in prayer. And we learned to minister our power right in the midst of our weaknesses. You know, I, the, the depression thing never fully left. There was always this shadow that I could fall into it again. One time I asked God, like, when am I going to be strong again? And he said, you're not. Because then you'd rely on yourself. So what I want to tell you is this. There's a treasure to be had. That's what this cause thing is all about. It's about the treasure. The treasure. The most valuable thing ever. The whole universe isn't worth this treasure. There's a treasure to be had. But it'll cost you everything. You say you want to have a move of God in your generation. I ask you this, what are you willing to pay for? You know, when the Holy Spirit fell on the Moravians 300 years ago, they started a prayer meeting, a 24-hour prayer chain that lasted for a century. 
And in that prayer meeting, the Spirit spoke to them and sent them to the corners of the world. Some 40 or 50 of them went to the Caribbean slave plantations to share Jesus with the slaves in the Caribbean, of whom only three returned alive. What are you willing to pay for what you ask for? You say you want to see people set free from their anxiety and their despair. What will you pay to get it? What will you lay down to get it? Because it costs everything. It has to be whatever it costs, Lord. Whatever the risk, whatever the price, whatever the suffering, whatever the misunderstanding, whatever the uncertainty, we will go, we will do whatever you call us to. That's what it's gotta be. We're just gonna wait for a minute. I believe God is raising up a new generation of people who will do whatever it takes. Who will not give in to fear. Who will abandon being in control. Put it all on the altar as we were singing earlier. I think it's happening here, right now.